It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of... D-O-O-M, and I mean it D-O-O-M. No, yep. it's the hour of blue. It's the hour of mood. <laughs> no, doom. That's right. No, Bloom, I'll tell you, you know I'm exactly. happy today. You are happy. I could not be happier. Well, this is actually a very, very interesting day. It's an awesome day. And <laughs> why is it awesome? Change. Hope. <laughs> hope and change. Wow. I, I remember hope, that. I hope there's hope and change. <laughs> I hope I I've I'm a very optimistic person anyway, but you know, things just haven't been working out for the past few years. And um, I'm hoping that we're going to have about more our jobs. Talking about our marriage? No. <laughs> Hasn't been working out? No, our marriage is super awesome. <laughs> I'm talking about the state of our country, and we need more jobs. There are young people who are either not going to college or who have gone to college, and neither of them are finding a lot of jobs. So we need to put the young people to work, give them a chance to have a life, to buy a home and have a car and actually succeed with a salary instead of having to live at home or or be supplemented by their parents, which is so sad because they're only able to get part-time jobs. Older people... When I say older, I mean experienced, wise people have been put out of jobs or been given part-time jobs. I mean, this is a sad state of affairs. We don't realize how bad the um, unemployment is. And so I'm hoping for more jobs. Yay! <laughs> the proceeding has been a paid political advertisement. <laughs> hey, and I don't think... And you approve and that you know message, what? Anyone sure. who disagrees <laughs> with adding more jobs to this country... Um, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> well, on that note, hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. This is Survival Medicine Hour, I know, not but I'm American just, Survival Radio. I'm just Radio. very happy today. It's Inauguration <laughs> Day, and I'm very happy. All right. Well, this is a new woo, year. Woo, woo, woo. A new year of yearning for um, 
yummy. Boy, I can't think of anything with a Y. Less yucky. In a less yucky world. There you <laughs> go. I'm Joel MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net. You'll find more than 900 posts, videos, and podcasts on our website. And not political. <laughs> and non-political, at least that website, on medical preparedness for any That's disaster. That's right, because everybody needs help. There no matter go. what you believe in this country, no matter who you voted for or who you wanted to win, everyone may need first aid and needs to have some knowledge. That's true. That's true. No matter who you are. And who are you? I am Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and I am also known as... Nurse Amy. That's right. And you are also known as the hostess with the mostess. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. We are the dynamic duo, the (laughs) perfect pair, the courageous couple. We're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And we mean it. (laughs) Friends and neighbors. Yes. Have you been injured in an accident? With a persnickety polar bear, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when a disaster occurs, emergency personnel might not be at hand, so it's just common sense to learn what to do for injuries and illness. Mm -hmm. That's smart, what we call smart. Shows you got a few (laughs) pearls in your oyster. And you know what smarter still would be to get some supplies and a decent medical kit. What do you think? Well, I think so. And what better place to get a decent medical kit than from the decent and beautiful Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Our kits are meant to handle issues you're going to face if help is not on the way. And unlike other survival kits, they're designed by a real doctor and surgeon and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Check them out at store.doomandbloom.net. You will be glad you did. You can also go to altonfirstaid.com. Altonfirstaid.com. Which is might be a little easier to remember. Remember, yep. yeah. Yep. Some people can't remember Doom and Bloom. If you can't, Alton First Aid, we're the Altons. And we do first aid, among other things. Now, yes. how are people getting a hold of us? Oh. We, we want them to do us a favor and connect with us. We learn as much from you guys out there than you do from us. So connect with us. It is so easy, and here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Please email us anytime you'd like at drbones, B-O-N-E-S, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Oh, wait, there's another Facebook page, Joe Alton, M.D., Yep. Which is your personal page they forced us to do. Yes. <laughs> it was not by choice we did all this. Um, Convoluted. Yes. Twitter, at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. I've been putting up videos recently. Yes. So if you guys haven't checked out the YouTube channel in a while, there's 
actually some new stuff, and I'm really trying to keep up with that. All right. I've got one that's in the can that you got to put up, too. It is in the can. Yes, yes. So, I'm really, I've done well. I appreciate it. Couple weeks, so you guys got some new stuff to go check out, and that is at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and that's kind of like all one word. You could check it out there. Also, I think if you look up uh, Dr. Bones podcast, it'll show up, or just Dr. Bones, it might show DR. up with Joe yeah. Alton, MD. So I've got a lot of tags, yeah. So there's a few ways to find the channel, but anyway. I want to say that we also have another podcast, and that podcast is called American Survival Radio. It is current events. It is politics. If you are not interested in current events or politics, do not listen to that. Yes. Do not listen to that podcast. (laughs) Don't drive yourself crazy if you're not interested. But if you are... Please do. It's on uh, Genesis Communications, GCNlive.com, also at americansurvivalradio.com. And you'll find us syndicated to uh, Radio KPJC in Salem, Oregon, Mm -hmm. and also the voice of Lubbock, Texas, Radio KRFE. We thank them for adding us to their lineups. Yeah. And we also want to thank uh, the Daily Caller, uh, Intellectual Conservative, uh, Lou Rockwell, Conservative Truth, and other websites for uh, posting some of my articles on current events and politics as well. Now, I want to let people know that we travel the country speaking to all sorts of folks. We sure do. And we hope that you will come to visit us when we travel. We're going to be in New Orleans, Louisiana on March 4th to 5th for the NPS Survival Expo. And we're going to give free lectures on survival medicine that you can take. Uh, We also have, actually before that, I've added a new show. Uh Uh-oh. We're going to be in Germantown. I might have mentioned that last week um, because we made the decision. But Germantown is near Memphis. And it's in Tennessee, of course. And we're going to be there. The week before, right? March. I'm sorry. February uh, 20, I think it's the 26th, 27th, I believe is that weekend. So we will be at that show. That is an RK Prepper show. And you can find out information on our medical classes page. Just scroll down. It gives the address. There's also a link to the RK Prepper Show, which gives you a map and tells you a little bit more about what's going to be at the show. We will be there. We'll be doing similar things as what we're going to do at the NPS show on March 4th and 5th. So we'll be giving lectures, and we'll also be teaching a suture class. And I try to do those on Sunday mornings because it seems to be the slowest. We have to cover up our booth, and we can't really speak to anybody. So uh, less traffic. And anyway, we're the other one I added was Gray's Lake, Illinois. This is going to oh, be interesting. It's not too far from Chicago. It's right? it's actually v- extremely close to something called North Chicago, and I think it's about an hour north of Chicago, the main city. Hmm. So interesting. We have never been up there to do anything related to prepping or lecturing or teaching. So, folks, if you live near Chicago or North Chicago. Come on down. It is 
maybe a once in a lifetime situation. Yeah, you're not going to find many. There's no other prepper survival shows. expos in Chicago. <laughs> there's I'm no sure. other survival shows that we know of, and, right. and we know a lot of those uh, circuits <laughs> that are ever going to be there. Let's make it a great show, so they want to come back. So come visit everybody. Come see some of the the stuff that people are showing and. Uh, put your hands on some equipment you might have been looking at. Right. You it's can take fine. our wound uh, care suturing class. Yeah. yeah. Sure, all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. So that that's going to be fun. I'm excited about that. My daughter, my older daughter lives in Chicago. So, yay. I just want to say that I'm sorry that we have all this housekeeping that we do at the beginning of every show. But we have so much that we do <laughs> more than compared to the average talk show host. That's Most true. of them just have a <clears throat> podcast, whereas we do so many other things. <laughs> we want you to know about every single thing ah. that we do because maybe podcasts aren't the, your favorite way of learning right. things. Maybe you like videos. Maybe you prefer to, to read, read articles. Exactly. You know, things like that. Yeah. And so that's why we do that. And we're sorry that we, if we pack our, the beginning of our show or, with, all the, with all the stuff that we do. Or they'd rather go to something live and listen to lectures. We're not the only ones lecturing, folks. There's lots of things you can learn at these shows. Absolutely. So it's not just about us. It's about getting some information that you might not have access to and um, some people who are very knowledgeable to teach you. Again, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the other people there. (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about altitude sickness. I haven't talked about that for quite a while, and I think it's very important. In any survival situation, you'll find yourself in a – you could possibly find yourself – relocating from a home that's relatively flat in the flatlands and mm-hmm. heading out to some bug out location in the mountains. That's our exact situation. If we chose to go from flat Florida to our smoky <laughs> mountain home in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which if you remember some of our past shows was miraculously spared from the recent wildfire. Boy, that was lucky. That we were so blessed and we were so sorry for all the poor, poor folks that oh, yeah. lost their lives oh, and, and you lost know their homes. I found something actually really good. If you go to, I believe it was GoFundMe, because I was checking that page out, they actually have a section, a a particular category at the top of the page that says Tennessee fires. Oh, good. So there are families that you can specifically donate to. I think there's even a fire department that was raising money for their firefighters. And there's different families. So if you wanted to help out and you wanted to know exactly where your money's going to, uh, you can go check out the GoFundMe Tennessee fires page. And uh, it was really kind of heartbreaking to see all the people. But you know what? If you give your money to them, you know, you feel like it's a trustworthy story. You get karma points. You'll... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We all feel good when we do things for others. Absolutely. But um, you can actually directly donate. And so I was really pleased to find that. Well, so anyhow, I want to talk about altitude sickness. And so if you have to bug out and go uphill... And it's likely you're going to have to move fast. And that rapid change in elevation for some people causes a condition called altitude sickness, or sometimes they call it AMS, acute mountain sickness. This occurs as a result of entering an area with lower oxygen availability, for example, like very high altitudes and reduced air pressures without first acclimating yourself, almost like the reverse of the bends, if you think about it. The altitude sickness issues 
that you'll see occur most commonly at elevations that are 8,000 feet above sea level or higher. So if mm-hmm. you live in Colorado, you live on the Rockies, right. that, those are the areas that people are going to have the most problems. It's something that is aggravated by exertion, and guess what you're going to be doing? If you're going to be traveling by foot especially, up a mountain at 8,000 feet, you are going to be exerting yourself. Wow. Uh, and and how, I'd say. <laughs> wow and how. <laughs> wow and how. Uh, altitude sickness, usually a temporary condition. Most people will get better, but some people develop complications in the form of fluid accumulation in certain organs. We call that edema, E-D-E-M-A. And an altitude sickness can occur in areas that are not good to have extra fluid in, like your lungs, which need to have air, not fluid in them, or your brain. Uh, Water on the brain is not a good thing to have and could be life-threatening. Absolutely. Well, for instance, the... A similar problem with the fluid in the lungs is when you have a severe bronchitis or a pneumonia. And, you know, that's something most people have probably gone through at least once in their life. And so that feeling of just not really being able to breathe is similar to what you're talking about, having that fluid in the lungs. And, you know, you're exhausted. You're not getting enough oxygen. And so it gives you lots of problems. But that's something that people might be able to relate to as far as preventing the oxygen exchange is that fluid in the lungs. That's right. Now, like many illnesses, the best strategy against altitude sickness is what? Prevention, of course. Choose the route to your retreat if it is a high elevation retreat so that your ascent is gradual. I have a suggestion. Don't climb a mountain. Oh, wait. People want to climb mountains. Well, I mean, zombies don't like climbing mountains, so (laughs) you might want to be pretty high up there. I bet a lot of you out there are in higher elevations. And your whole point of of having to get away from something means that you might have to do this whether you like it or not. Yes, that's right. Not that you're planning to do this, but, you know, if something happens, you might just have to. So the problem is too rapid a increase in elevation. And they recommend don't go higher up than maybe 2,000 feet Mm -hmm. or more, uh, a little more, of ascent every day. And that's important. So every 24 hours. Now, do they want you to ascend in a shorter period of time and then stay in that location for the rest of the day? Or do they want you to just only go every 2,000 feet for 24 hours. So, well, the more gradual <clears throat> the descent, the better. If you go up ascent. very quickly, okay. uh, ascent rather, right. the better. If you go up 2,000 feet in, in two minutes, then you might get symptoms. So <laughs> if you want to avoid some of those symptoms, then you should go Walk probably slowly. a little more slowly. Now, other things that uh, complicate this is dehydration. So make sure people don't become dehydrated as they're climbing and especially avoid the consumption of alcohol, uh, bad idea for a lot of people. Don't bring it on the trip. That's right. So some people are going to be more susceptible to acute mountain sickness or altitude sickness than others at lower levels than what is usually seen sometimes. So if you have no choice but to make a rapid descent, you have no choice but to get going and get up there quick, you have to monitor everyone in your party. That's going to be very important. Now, when people have altitude sickness, you're going to start seeing symptoms that would be that would remind you a little bit of either the flu minus mm-hmm. a fever 
or a hangover, interestingly enough. Now, if it's mild, you'll see things like uh, fatigue, uh, dizziness, headaches. They might have trouble sleeping. You might see nausea and vomiting, a lack of appetite, uh, tachycardia, a fast heart rate, heart rate. Some people get weird pins and needles sensations. Some people may feel short of breath. Now, those with major complications will be worse than that. They'll have severe shortness of breath. They, their altered mental status, instead of just fatigue or headaches or dizziness, they're going to be confused. They're going to be uncoordinated. Mm -hmm. They're going to have all sorts of things. And also, you might see some changes in their coloration. That It may have a blue or grayish appearance to the skin in the, especially in the area of the fingertips and the lips. Look, look at those areas and look at the nail beds and see if it looks sort of blue. That is a bad sign. Of mm -hmm. course, these people become dehydrated. In the worst cases, they lose consciousness or they start coughing up blood, no less. Bad news, and that's part of what's in the fluid that they're accumulating right. in, in, in the their lungs. lungs. Right. That's called pulmonary edema. Now, to treat altitude sickness, you have to give that person a lot of rest. I mean, if only to stop further ascending course, and making things worse, course. allowing a little more time to acclimate. <clears throat> and certainly do it before you start having any of the severe symptoms that I mentioned. It might be wiser in some cases to actually go down in elevation. If if you have now, one thing that's interesting, now an oxygen tank, we don't talk too much about having oxygen tanks. Right. But there are portable really oxygen. bug out right. thing. <laughs> but it, it, if you have the ability to, to have a portable oxygen tank, it doesn't have to be very, very big, but it will be useful uh, if you notice any symptoms of altitude sickness, and that's something that's important. Some people feel Extra that... oxygen. A, yes, and some people feel that a diet high in carbohydrates may reduce some of the ill effects that you'll see with altitude sickness. So this is the time to eat the Snickers bars. Yeah, and man. And all the bread and crackers yep. you can, yeah, you can <laughs> The things that she doesn't want me to eat. That's not good for you. <laughs> in general, but it might be good for you to prevent this or to make, right. it, make it a little better. Now, medications, of course, these are used for people that have issues that might be in at risk for altitude sickness or might have some of the early effects. The pre, uh, prescription drug acetazolamide is called Diamox, D-I-A-M-O-X. That has a diuretic effect. The diuretic effect means that it helps you eliminate excess fluid from the body and the places that might have excess fluid by urination and sort of flush those out. It also helps prevent the accumulation of fluid in, in important organs like the lungs or the brain. Mm -hmm. And acetazolamide is superior. There are a lot of diuretics, and you might consider cranberry juice, but acetazolamide is, is stronger, and it forces the kidneys to excrete something called bicarbonate. And if you get rid of more bicarbonate from the body, the body becomes more acidic. Acidifying the blood stimulates ventilation, increases the amount of oxygen in the body. This is just what you need when Absolutely. you have altitude sickness. Yep. might not be an immediate effect, but it certainly would speed up recovery. Now, the usual doses of acetazolamide are 125 to 1,000 milligrams daily. You have to ask your doctor for it, but you should ask your doctor if you are going to be traveling or at risk to travel in areas that are very, very high elevation. And these should uh, actually, you can use 
acetazolamide or Diamox as a preventative, sometimes starting a couple of days before a travel to uh, a trip to high elevations. We have Diamox. Yes, we do indeed have a Diamox. I don't remember why we got it. Well, Did we get it as a blood pressure medicine or do we? Well, it's a diuretic, but we oh, we have yes, it. We, that's why I got we're it. sort of medical preparedness <laughs> folks, so we have a lot of things that the I just, average person doesn't have. That I just is I know we have it. I just forgot for why we have it because we have so <laughs> many medicines. But I remember that being one. But yeah, I was using it as a, a diuretic when yeah. I was. Oh, you know what it is? The traveling that we do, the food away from home is so high in salt, and I was just having severe swelling like bloating and pressure in my head, like right. headaches from it. So I would take a Diamox, and the next day I would feel so much better. Well, the thing is, is that even though it's a prescription medicine, it is something that a reasonable doctor should not refuse you, if, especially if you're going to be in areas where, they're, where you're going to be making a right. possible ra- relatively rapid ascent uh, or, or get mountain sickness. So a lot of people, let's say, that go skiing, on a yearly basis, let's. I have a lot of friends down here in Florida that go skiing, so they go into high elevations, like in Colorado, and they ask their doctor for a prescription before they travel, and right. it helps prevent get mountain getting <clears throat> uh, a case of mountain sickness. So that's the important thing: have good communication with your doctors, and uh, you'll probably be have no trouble getting a prescription for this in case of emergencies. So oh, I just want to mention a, an over-the-counter. Obviously not as good and and not specifically for um, altitude sickness, but pampering. It's a female medicine. It's usually in the area where there's female medicines. <laughs> but pampering has a really good diuretic. And I've found that that would be an alternative if I didn't have the Diamox to the bloating and swelling that I get. So... If you want to stock up on a diuretic that's over the counter, you might want to grab some pamperin. Very interesting. So it's at least an over the counter alternative. And like I said, I there's no research that I know of off the top of my head that says, oh yeah, this is good for you know altitude sickness. I'm just letting you know it's a general diuretic, but it, it it's very effective. Well, there is uh, a natural substance that some people believe might be helpful to naturally prevent altitude sickness. That's Jinko biloba. And some people say that uh, taking in a, a small amount of uh, Jinko biloba mm-hmm. extract may allow the brain to tolerate lower oxygen levels. This is something, again, I don't have a lot of hard evidence about. I know. But it's hard to find like solid to, evidence, yeah. scientific things. But now, I like to mention, you know, it whenever possible, well, if let there's me something that might help. I, you know, you say prevention. Did, did you find out, did... Was there any information about, do you take it every day for a week before you go or just the day before? Was there any? No, you would take it. No, that's the you thing. You would be taking it don't for know. a period of time beforehand. I would take it for three or four days before you go. Yeah, to get your, build your body Absolutely. up. Absolutely. That's the thing. And if you can prevent this, it'd be great. And sometimes you need a certain amount of, a certain level of the ingredients, right. active ingredients in your, in your body right. to have an effect uh, to prevent an ill effect that would occur uh, if you try if you go uphill. Of course, of course. So let's talk a little bit about. I want to finish 
our series on hypothermia. Certainly, we've talked about blizzards. We've talked about avalanche survival. We've right. talked about general general hypothermia. I want to talk a little bit about winter car survival. In other words, That's what, scary. what are you going to do in a situation where you might be on a frozen highway and you skid out and you were hit a car you're in a like we lonely almost did rural, in alabama yeah, i know like we talked about that r- last lonely show <laughs> rural area like we were at Surv- it could be just black ice it doesn't have to be a, oh, a blizzard man. and you could be the best driver in the world it doesn't matter and it can be a that big, ice can get you it can be don't a judge people who have accidents in the winter believe me once your car loses control that it, there's like nothing you can do except pray you land in a very soft spot Oh, that's true. <clears throat> now, I mean, extreme conditions, they can occur anywhere. It can occur on a wilderness trail, but they can occur with you right in your driver's seat of the family car. So it's important to have a plan of action in case you get stranded. Mm-hmm. Now, you should, of course, winterize your car. Cold weather affects rubber. It affects metal. It decreases the efficiency of the battery. Uh, tires become stiff and flat, especially in the as you get started for the first few hundred yards at least. Oils and other lubricants become thicker and mm-hmm. at cold temperatures, maybe not. Speaking of lubricants, would you like a little more coffee? Oh, I yes. will go get you some coffee that while you be... chat with uh, the folks listening. Well, you are the bomb. I love well, you. thank you. You're welcome. Isn't she amazing? <laughs> she is indeed. So all of this makes your engine work harder. And so, you know, you have to winterize. That means switching to, let's say, a lighter viscosity oil. Uh, changing to snow tires or, or putting uh, snow cha- uh, tire chains on, uh, choosing uh, the right antifreeze is very important as well. And, of course, any time that you're traveling in cold weather, you should always make sure that you top off the gas tank, if at all possible, because you do not want to run out of gas. That is something important. And also, very little amount of gas in the tank is not good for the car either. So that's something that's very important to know. Now let's talk, we've talked about your car. Let's talk about your life. I mean, you're not a bear. You can't hibernate through the cold weather. You got to live in it. So take measures to avoid becoming a victim of it, right? That only makes sense. There are a lot of deaths from exposure that are avoidable if only simple precautions are taken. And the first question you should ask before you ever get in a car in cold weather is very simply, What's the forecast? Are you going to drive straight into trouble? You have to know the weather beforehand. It's a lot better than finding out about it once you're on the road. That's so important. Now, the the second question you should ask, is this trip necessary? If the answer is no, for goodness sake, stay home. Nice, warm, cozy place. You'd rather be there if you don't have to be on the road in extreme cold. Now, of course, for most people that work, The answer is yes, this trip is necessary. And if you have no choice but to hit the road during a winter storm, for goodness sake, drive as if your life depends on it because it does. You should brush ice and snow off your windshield, side mirrors, anywhere where your view might be blocked. That's very important. Make sure you don't speed. Don't tailgate people, for goodness sake. Your your reaction time is not going to help you even if you are a... Navy SEAL, you're not going to have enough of a reaction time if you tailgate on icy roads. Uh, Don't weave in and out of traffic. Ditto with icy roads. And make sure you make your turns slowly, deliberately, and avoid any 
screeching stops and, and starts. I did that once in uh, Vail, Colorado, and so I tried to stop the car relatively quickly, you know, pumping the or, or hitting the brakes, and sure enough, I just sort of continued to slide. I remember the funny, that story. The funny thing is I just was sliding, so sliding. I was about 50 feet nothing you could or do. more in front of the... I was more than 50 feet behind the car in front of me. That car which was stopped a, at a stop sign. Which is good right. space. Eh? Pretty decent. Yeah. It was at, in front of a stop sign. That car was stopped at a stop sign. And I put the brakes on. And the funny thing is the brake, the car didn't swerve to one side or another. It just didn't stop. <laughs> And so, and, a and I can feel, feeling. and I can feel that the the brakes were doing brakes, that pumpy thing. Yeah, and and the tires were not moving. I can I can feel that oh. it was just sliding, and so I just oh. slid, slid, slid in at about five miles an hour. Finally, or or a little more, I wound up hitting the Bink. car. Yep, last ticket, oh. last ticket I got many oh. years ago. Isn't that crazy? And well, they gave you a ticket, you know. They think. Yeah, well, I hit the guy. In I know, front of me. but you would think they'd give you a little bit of a break in the ice. Well, you know, like, well, we understand, sir. This happens to a million people every single day. <laughs> slide into another car. Well, I think that they have their job to do, and you know what? For me, blue lives matter. You want to give me a ticket? Feel free. That's true, officer. And thank you for doing helping, your job. Doing your job. <laughs> um, let's see what else. Oh. You should always notify somebody. If you're going to be traveling on rural roads, on country roads, in cold weather, for goodness sake, tell people about your travel plans before you head out. Make sure they know where you're going and when you should be there and when you should be back. That is very important. With uh, and, and also, if you have a cell phone, take it with you. But save keep it, it charged. Yes, save it for emergencies. You know, don't use I don't use it to, that'll in any way that will drain the battery or. On texts to your texts to your friends. Well, you shouldn't be texting while you're driving anyway. Right, your focus shame, should shame, be on shame, the road. Shame. Focus should be on the road. That's right. That's right. Especially now, in those kind of conditions. Now, I will say that if you do live in an area that a rural area, for example, we have a, a homestead, uh, it routinely has very cold winters. You might not be able to avoid getting stranded in your car one day. I mean, that I'll, I'll admit that, and your level of preparedness is going to be very important in that circumstance. It'll give you a shot at surviving mm -hmm. that stranding and coming back home. So what kind of things that should you do? Number one, stay calm. Okay, if the car is, you know, has, has crashed or you're just not starting, stay calm. And for at least for now, please don't leave the car. It's very important. It's warmer there than outside and you've got protection from the wind. Having adequate shelter is one of the keys to success in this situation, whether you're in the wilderness or in on a snow-covered highway. Uh, ventilation, that's preferable to asphyxiation, so crack a window on the side away from the wind to get some fresh air because you know that there is an exhaust system. If there's snow that blocks up the exhaust system, that can cause carbon monoxide to enter the passenger compartment. That's Big trouble because it's colorless, it's odorless, the deadly gas kills in enclosed spaces without ventilation. Some people use it to commit suicide. And so you've got to clear your exhaust pipe of snow. Run the If you have to run the en engine to stay warm, you should do that only about 10 minutes or so an hour. That will help prevent carbon monoxide poisoning. So that's something that's important. You know, people think about water, they think about food as essential for 
survival, but you know what? Air is probably pretty important too. What else? Let's see. Oh, you should, if you're in a group of people, make sure you huddle together as best you can. Create a warm pocket in the car. That's important. Uh, keep moving a little bit. If you should uh, rub your hands, put them in your armpits, let's say. Keep moving uh, your legs a little bit. That might help your muscles produce heat. Your muscles produce heat by shivering, but if you can keep yourself moving, then you might be able to stay warmer. Uh, don't overexert yourself. Remember, your uh, it, let's say if your car is stuck in the snow, you do want to dig yourself out, but a lot of sweating will cause clothing to become wet, and wet clothing loses its value as insulation, leads to hypothermia pretty fast. That is important. Let other people know that you're there. Now, you should have flares. You should have emergency lights on your vehicle. Flash those. Uh, those are going to drain battery power, though, But so only use them if you think somebody's actually going to see you at one point or another. Now, if you're going to travel in very cold conditions, I want you to have a certain number of things in the car at all times. This is a winter survival car kit. It's got a lot of stuff, so I hope you have a little space in the trunk. That's going to be important. You should have wool blankets. Remember, wool stays warm even when, when it's wet, so wool blankets, good idea. I think that's important. Also, mylar blankets. If you don't have enough space, you can try mylar, mylar blankets. Maybe not as good, but uh, certainly better than nothing. A spare sets of dry clothes, including socks, hats, and mittens in case you get wet. Hand warmers or other instant heat packs. Skiers, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, they're usually activated by shaking or, or squeezing. They last for hours, and they'll help keep... Uh, hands warm, maybe help prevent things like frostbite. Uh, matches, lighters, fire starters in case you need to manufacture heat. Some people, uh, of course, flashlights are very important, but keep the batteries in backwards until you need them or don't put the batteries in in them until you need them. Uh, a multi-tool, uh, a small multi-tool that would have a blade and screwdrivers and uh, pliers and knife, of course, would be a good idea. A larger combination tool like a foldable shovel Acts like a shovel, but also acts as an axe, a saw, things like that. Um, sand, rock salt is very useful. If you have it in a plastic container, you can put that under your tires, give some traction where it's needed. Uh, maybe a tow chain or rope in case a Good Samaritan comes by. Flares, uh, I think I mentioned that. Jumper cables, of course. Uh, water, food, some energy bars, some MREs, some dehydrated soups perhaps, some candies. Uh, baby wipes for hygiene purposes, a, a good first aid kit, of course. Medications, if you need them, have a few spare there. Uh, tarp and duct tape would be good if you have a brightly colored tarp. You'll be easier to see, for example, if you run off the road and you're down a slope. That might be a, a good idea. Um, let's see what else. A noisemaker, well, like a, a whistle or some other kind of noisemaker that will help you get noticed, and, of course, your cell phone and charger. And so if you have all this stuff, then, you know, you're going to have a, a head start in keeping safe and sound, even if you're stranded. So that's something that's important. I think you can survive. If you have some of this stuff, I think you can survive almost any storm. I want to talk a little bit about what does happen in cases of uh, excessive exposure. We talked about general hypothermia, but then there's hypothermia that occurs on the extremities, things like your fingertips or your toes or your tip of your nose, the uh, 
earlobes, things like that, or your lips. Uh, some people get freezing of these tissues, uh, and that we call frostbite. Now, frostbite is something that usually seen in extreme cold, and you'll find it at the Everest Base Camp. If you take a look, I'm sure, at some of the guides at the Everest Base Camp, Mount Everest Base Camp, you'll find some of them are missing tips of their fingers and other items, but it is something that doesn't start off with your fingers just falling off. I mean, they usually start off with a redness to the uh, the extremities, the tips. You may feel pins and needles. You may feel vague numbness, weird sensations there. And after a period of time, if you don't warm up, then what happens is the skin becomes sort of whitish and waxy in appearance. Then it becomes sort of blue. And then it becomes, when, once it becomes black, well, that tissue is now dead from loss of circulation. And when that happens, we call it gangrene, G-A-N-G-R-E-N-E. And if gangrene sets in, well, then you have big problems. That tissue is rarely going to be able to be salvaged, and many times they'll amputate those areas because, remember, you have rotting tissue essentially still on you, on your fingertips and your toes, things like that, and sometimes you just have to remove them. And so that's a common cause for amputation in extreme cold conditions. Uh, There's another type of extremity issue that occurs. It used to be called trench foot in World War I when soldiers used to sit or stand in cold water for long periods of time. They would get trench foot. Now we call it immersion foot. And that causes damage to nerves and small blood vessels due to that prolonged immersion in cold water. But when you see it in areas other than the feet, uh, this kind of condition is actually called chillblains. You may have heard that your grandma or grandpa talk talk about that. It is very similar to frostbite, but has a generally more swollen appearance, may look a little juicier. I don't know. Uh, it just depends on the particular case. Now, frostbite, immersion foot, you want to treat that with a, 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 you know how I mentioned that you should use dry, warm compresses on people with general hypothermia. You might actually take an extremity that has frostbite and put it in a warm water bath. But when I say warm, I mean no more than about 104 degrees for about 30 to 60 seconds or until the skin returns to red. If you can get the skin to return to red, at least you know that there is circulation. Uh, Some people will uh, want to use some ibuprofen or aspirin for pain. Uh, and and to prevent clots in these damaged blood vessels, that's something that's pretty useful. Uh, Make sure you don't allow any uh, thawed tissue to freeze again. More often the tissue freezes, then thaws, then freezes, then thaws. The more the damage, think about what happens to a steak that goes from the freezer to outside and back again a few times. If you can't prevent your patient from being exposed to freezing temperatures again, you might have to wait before treating them. The problem is you can't wait too long, not more than, let's say, a day, perhaps. Um, Don't rub or massage frostbitten areas. Remember that frostbitten tissue is traumatized, is damaged tissue, and the more you traumatize that traumatized tissue, well, you got more trauma. And so, therefore, you should not be rubbing that tissue in any significant way. Uh, Don't use heat lamps or fires to treat frostbite. You remember your patient's numb. They can't feel the frostbitten tissue in most cases. This could lead to significant burns. You can use body heat 
Of course, to thaw mild frostbite, put somebody's mildly frostbitten fingers under your arm, for example. That might help warm them up. So that's something that I think is a good idea as well. I want to spend the rest of my time talking a little bit about cold water safety. You know, it's not just a winter issue. Water doesn't have to be that cold to make you hypothermic and say, hey, water that really is cooler than normal body temperature is going to cause heat loss. You could die of hypothermia off the coast of Florida here where we are if you're immersed long enough. In other words, your temperature is 98.6. Let's say the water temperature is 78 degrees. Well, I mean, eventually you're going to lose enough heat from your body. You could actually die of hypothermia off a tropical coast. Amazing, isn't it? Now, in the event that you find yourself in cold water, you got to have a strategy that's going to keep you alive until you're rescued. Um, let's talk a little bit about falling in the water when your boat capsizes, and then we'll talk about falling through ice in a, on a winter hike. To increase your chances of survival in cold water, you got to wear a life jacket, right? Whenever you're on a boat, you should always wear a life jacket. Very few people do follow this 100%, but you probably really should. A life jacket is going to help you stay alive longer by letting you float, enabling you to float without using a lot of energy and by providing a little insulation. Jackets with built-in whistles are the kind that are best or those that have GPS. So you can have a signal that says, hey, I'm in distress, I need help. Uh, you want to keep your clothes on if you're in the water. Uh, you want to bu actually button or zip, or, or zip up so you can actually get the benefit of the small amount of warmer water that is near your body than in the general environment. Uh, cover your head if you can. The, the layer of water between your clothing and your body, remember, will help insulate you from the cold. Make sure that you remove your clothing only after you're safely out of the water and then whatever, do whatever you can to get dry and warm. Now, if you can get out of the water just partially, do so. I mean, the less percentage of your body that's exposed to cold water, the less heat you're going to lose. So if there's a capsized boat, for example, or, or a floating object, that's going to increase your chances of survival. If you can climb on it, just think about uh, Titanic. I think the, the heroine found some kind of raft or, or floating piece of debris she was able to get up off of the water, uh, out of the water from, and her boyfriend was unable to do that. I just was able to get just arms and head out of the water. He died of hypothermia. She did not. And so that is something very, very important. Uh, now, the thing is, do not use up energy swimming around unless you know where you're swimming to. I mean, you have to have a dry place to swim to. So unless you're being chased by a shark, do not swim. Conserve your energy. Now, position your body to lessen heat loss. There's actually a specific body position that's considered to be appropriate for uh, this situation, and that's called the HELP position, H-E-L-P, and that's the uh, Heat Escape Lessening Position. That's H-E-L-P for all you acronym fans, and that will help you reduce heat loss. What you have to do is you hold your knees up to your chest and grab them so they they sort of got, sort of shield your torso, your body core, from heat loss. So that's something that's very useful. It helps keep heat from escaping from your body and increases your chances for survival. Now, if you are with other people in the water, uh, I think that it makes sense to, just like you would in the car, 
huddle together, face each other in a tight circle, hold on to each other, and you will have a slightly warmer pocket of water where all that body heat is. Now, what if you're hiking in the wilderness and you wind up realizing too late that you're on the icy surface of a lake? Whenever you're out in the wild, it makes sense to take a change of clothes in some kind of waterproof container. And this is what I mentioned for your winter car survival kit, what you should have in the car. Always have some extra clothes. You should do the same and put some in your backpack if you're going to be out hiking in the wilderness whenever you're out in the wild that's what you really should do and that and those clothes should be in some kind of plastic either a container or wrap them up in plastic in such a fashion so they don't get wet when you do because you might let's say fall through the ice and that's important you should also have some way of uh, producing heat uh, for example a fire starter and uh, have some of these uh, heat packs those would be very useful if you wind up having to get up out of the ice uh, ice, by the way, can handle the weight of an average human if it's about four or more inches thick. Even this thickness can be undermined by flowing water just below the surface. That weakens the underside of the ice. And you have to realize that when you're walking on the ice, safety is never absolutely guaranteed. Now, you might be able to identify weaker areas on the ice. Uh, if the ice on the edge of the water body is firm and solid, then it's more likely to be safe. If it's slushy or cracked, less likely. Remember that slush, slushy ice is deteriorating, not a reliable walking surface. The safest ice to be on is sort of a clear blue in color due to having a higher density. That's supposed to be higher density ice, although testing for thickness with an ice pick is not a bad idea in these situations. Now, thinner areas of ice tend to be somewhat darker in color, uh, ice that thaws and refreezes in layer might be sort of whitish, but that's sort of questionable due to air pockets. There are areas of contrasting color you might see in ice, and that indicates that there's an uneven thickness. Be very careful here because you may be able to walk on a portion of it, and then your next step might put you right through the ice. Now, let's say you have done that and you've fallen through the ice. Your body is going to react to a, that sudden immersion in cold water, with an increased pulse rate, with a higher blood pressure, with uh, fast breathing. And now it's not going to be easy in that circumstance to stay calm, but you have to try to stay as calm as possible. You do have a few minutes before you die, so you have to realize that panic's your enemy and you have a period of time that you could get yourself out of the water. Important thing, get your head out of the water by breathing in and bending backwards tread water and quickly get rid of any heavy objects that are weighing you down. Now keep your clothing on though if you can. Your clothes have air pockets that are helping you stay a little more buoyant. Now turn your body in the direction of where you came from because you know the ice was strong enough to hold you there. Now try to lift up out of the ice using your hands and arms. Spread your arms widely in front of you and kick with your feet to give yourself a little forward momentum and at the same time try to get more of your body out of the water. Let's say if you had an ice pick, you could actually use it to help gain a handhold, and that would be great. Of course, who's going to have an ice pick in their hands when they fall through the water? It should be carried, really, by anybody who expects to be traveling on ice, but you might, you might lose it as a result of your fall. Who knows? Uh, you want to, once you have your arms out and a little bit of your body out, try to lift a leg onto the ice. 
and then lift and roll out onto the firmest surface possible. Don't try to stand up, though. Keep rolling in the direction that you were walking before you fell through. Remember, you know that that is an appropriate amount of thickness to have kept you up. And then crawl away until you're sure you're safe, get to the water's edge and on dry land, and start working immediately to get warm. So that is what I think would make a lot of sense to try to survive mishaps that occur in cold, extreme cold conditions. Well, we're just about at the end of our time here. We thank you for watching. I do want to say just a couple of things that our hopes and prayers go to the Bush family. President George H.W. Bush, Bush the Elder, number 41, is in the hospital with pneumonia and a variant of Parkinson's or a mimic of Parkinson's disease. This is something very serious for someone that's 92 years old. I don't know how long we're going to have President Bush with us anymore, but he is a decent man, uh, someone that uh, I admire, and I also admire his wife, Dorothy, who is also in the hospital with an unrelated issue. I really am concerned that we may lose a president in the next, just as we're gaining a new president, and I hope and pray for their full recovery. I just want to also say that, you know what, we have our Survival Medicine Handbook in its third edition. It is at Amazon.com. It's 700 pages, 150 topics, everything written in the mindset that there is no doctor, no hospital, and help is not on the way. And our job is to make you an effective medic in times of trouble, even if you're just the average citizen. Everything's in plain English, just like all of our other resources. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. That's all, folks. See you next time. And thanks for listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. These days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.